So on October 6th, the Dallas Cowboys played the Green Bay Packers in a football game. And uh, the photo that went viral was not this photo. And it wasn't a photo of Aaron Rodgers making some crazy pass or Prescott making an amazing play. No, the photo that went viral the next day was this photo of Ellen DeGeneres and George W. Bush sharing uh, smiles and laughs in the owner's box. And Twitter went nuts. Um, and this is only a sampling of the hundreds of tweets that went out with people wondering why a liberal, democratic lesbian would be laughing and enjoying time with a conservative Republican who went in office, passed bills that prevented same-sex marriage. And people were furious. Why would Ellen be, it's going to hurt her brand, why would she be with a guy like him? And so the next day she took the time on her talk show to remind everybody that she ends every episode of her show by saying, be kind to everyone. And then she said, when I say that, I don't mean be kind to the people that think the same thing as I do. I really mean everyone. To which another Twitter storm fire of people criticizing her for such a statement. It's hard to be kind to everyone, isn't it? Isn't it hard to be nice to the people that we don't like? The question is, who are the people that you have a hard time being kind to? Who are the people that you find yourself feeling hostile towards? Maybe it's a particular people group. Maybe it's a political party. Maybe it's somebody here at Grace Point. Who do you have hostility towards? Well, this morning's text will explain why we have that hostility. And then it'll provide us with the only solution to getting rid of it. And so join me now as we read God's word. We're going to be looking at, um, like I said, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And they are up on the um, board if you didn't bring your Bibles. This is God's word. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is God's word. All God's people say. All right, so the first thing we need to see from this text is that we are hostile towards one another. If you remember last week, we saw, we went through the first part of this passage, and what we saw was that um, Pastor Tom was helping us to see the amazing thing and the amazing work that Christ accomplished to bring the Gentiles into the covenant with Israel. It was an amazing um, promise that's fulfilled, and what we talked about is the importance for us today to remember who we were so that we can appreciate who we are. What has God done so that we can see who we are? But... The verses today remind us that in doing that, in reconciling Gentile and Jew, a new problem was introduced, which is how do you get enemies to now live peacefully under the same roof together? People that have hated one another for thousands of years are now in one family. How do you, how do you make that work? And Paul describes it in verse 14 as the dividing wall of hostility. And just to kind of get a sense of how crazy this is, right? Imagine um, He-Man and Skeletor having a pizza party together. How, how could, in what world would that ever happen, right? Or to get more serious, right? Imagine North Korea and South Korea being at a place where they're under the same roof existing peacefully. 
or Hong Kong and China right now. We're to make it really personal, you and them. Who's the them? The them are the people I just asked you to think about when I asked you who you have a hard time being warm towards. Who are you hostile towards? Imagine a place where you guys are at peace, where you're embracing one another. Well, it's important to understand how we got to this place of hostility to understand where we are. And so if you remember from the very beginning, God set apart his people. He, he explicitly told them not to be a part of the world. He set them in. He said, don't be like the nations around you. He gave them his law that set them and made them distinct from those around them. And this is all over the Old Testament. If you look at a couple of verses here, you shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, right? Don't do the practices of the surrounding nations. But those commands were not given to Israel because Israel was special. They weren't about a special people being able to do special things. They were commands that revealed a good God and commands that revealed how you could be close and have relationship with that good God. And you see that all over the Old Testament as well. In Deuteronomy, right, the God chose you out of all the peoples to be his treasured possession. But he didn't love you, right? He didn't choose you because you were great in number. And then two chapters later, and it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession, right? You're a stiff-necked people. You're stubborn. You're sinful, right? Israel is God's creation. They're a small, insignificant people, stubborn and sinful. And God showed them love and grace and mercy because it pleased him. God would be glorified through them against all odds. This small, insignificant, stubborn, sinful nation would outshine the nations around them that appeared with human eyes to be more advanced, to be more cultured, to be more developed, right? And the commands were not for the people to be able to earn their salvation by following them. The commands were given because they were good, because they led to thriving, and primarily because they led to fellowship with God, to close communion with the one that they were made for, right? And this is critical for God's plan. By following the law, Israel was going to be a light to the nations around them. Israel was going to point all the people outside of the covenant to the one true God. And they were going to bless the nations with their righteous living. And this too is all over the Bible. I'm going to make you a light that, they might, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Seek the peace of the city to which I carried you into exile, right? Pray for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Well, that didn't happen. And we have to, again, go back to Eden. And I hope you've seen over the past couple months just how devastating the fall is, right? And what we said, right, is this first sin is an assertion of the self-will over God, my will over your will. Adam and Eve were hostile to the idea of a God that was over them, that was able to tell them what was right and what was wrong, that was more powerful than they, was, they were. And they passed that hostility they had towards God onto us. And what we said two weeks ago is that every sin against God has some sort of analogy 
in our lives, in our world. And this is what we see here. If we don't like God, if we're opposed to the one we were made for, the one we're, we're supposed to be in fellowship with, the one who gives us meaning and purpose, then of course we're going to be hostile with each other. Now, John Piper in his book Bloodlines says it really powerfully. He says, we're meant to magnify our maker, make much of him as we are made in his image, but instead we find pleasure in ourselves being exalted. That's because we're in rebellion against God, exalting ourselves over our maker. And of course, if against our maker, over against each other, that's a given. If I have the audacity not to submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I'll have no problem putting you down. You see what John Piper's saying? The biggest problem that we have is our hostility towards God. And because of that, that attitude flows out in our relationships with one another. Now think about this for a second. You, you and I were made for an infinite God, made in his image, made to have pleasure and joy in knowing him and being with him. And that's what gives us meaning and purpose. But to the degree that we don't believe that, if you're a Christian, or to the degree that you don't believe in God, right, what's going to happen? Well, guess what? You're still made for God. You're still made in his image. You're still made for him. But you don't think that's true. So where does all of your energy go? Where do you get your meaning and purpose if it's not where it's supposed to be? Well, it's in all these other things. It's in your race. It's in your jobs. It's in your families. It's in your teams. That's where your identity is, right? Because your ultimate value is supposed to be in God, so now you make these other things ultimate. And if they're threatened, you have to put people down for that, right? You have to be hostile because that's your meaning. That's your purpose. That's your value. That makes sense. So to the degree that you don't believe the gospel is true in your life, you're going to have that hostility towards someone or something for those things that you value. And we see that in the history of the world. We see that in the Bible all the way to the present. This dynamic of superiority and hostility, right? Why does Pharaoh imprison the Israelites? Because they're growing in number. They're, they're, they're out of control. They're, they're, they're powerful. And, and he feels threatened. His power, his authority, his legacy is threatened. So I better make them slaves. I better make them small, serving me, asserting my power, right? When Moses marries a Cushite woman, what Miriam and, and Aaron, his brother and sister, oppose him. Don't marry a Cushite. She's beneath us. She has dark skin, right? There's, there's a racial element to that. The law was meant to be a light, right, for the nations from Israel. And what does it do? It makes the Israelites feel superior over the Gentiles. And what is the Gentiles' response? No, we don't like you either. We're going to be, we're more superior than you are. And that continues all the way to the present, does it not? Piper goes on to say, racism is not a teeny problem. It's a history-long problem. It's a global problem. Devastating, murderous problem. The Armenian genocide in Turkey in 1915. Millions of people. The Holocaust, six million people. The Soviet gulags, tens of millions. Rwanda. We can look at our news, right? The Turks and the Kurds right now. And it's not just race, right? It's men over women. 
if the Me Too movement has revealed anything about men is that we're hostile towards women. For whatever reason, they have something we want, they won't give it to us, so we'll take it, right, with power, with influence, with abuse. And the women respond by being hostile towards men. The future is female, right? This, this can't be true unless we figure out how to manufacture sperm, right? We, we need men and women to have a future, so I always, I always find that funny. Right? We see it in our politics, Democrats and Republicans. And we do it ourselves, right? We elevate ourselves for all sorts of things we feel superior. We're in a good school district. We look down on other schools, right? Two years ago, some of our kids were at a football game, both from Cheltenham, if you guys remember this, and from Quakertown. And a huge fight broke out. Students from Quakertown were throwing rocks and shouting racial slurs and cursing at the cheerleaders. Is that really about a team? Is that really about football? Or is that about my, myself being threatened, something that I'm superior over you over, right? We do it with our teams, right? Why, why do we care so much when our teams lose to the degree that we're willing to throw things at people and curse them out, right? Well, that's mistaken, that's misplaced value and meaning. That value and meaning comes to us from God, and we're displacing it onto our teams, something that's supposed to be a form of entertainment, and it gets our bloods boiling, and we get angry, right? So do a little thought experiment to see where you're hostile. Maybe you say, this, this stuff doesn't bother me, Chris. I don't, I don't care about politics. I don't care about my team. Well, what do you do well? What do the people in your life look at you and say, you do that really well? What are you proud of? What, what gifts do you have? That's likely where you actually show your hostility the most. Because whenever you see somebody that does that same thing not as good as you, you look down on them. You judge them. I could do that better. That wasn't done well. Or on the flip side, what do you most want or desire? And when you see other people that have that, you're hostile. You're angry. You don't like them. You, you, you dislike that they have what you want, what you deserve, what you should have. That's where you're hostile. And what's crazy is that this works in all sorts of sneaky ways, right? We can have righteous anger about an issue, and it could become unrighteous. I think all of us in here would agree that racism is an evil problem that needs to be dealt with, right? But our anger about racism can become unrighteous. And I'm going to give you an embarrassing but true example from my own life. Probably 10 years ago, I was walking in New York City. And as is the case on most days, the streets are crowded with people from every walk of life. And I was walking by an African-American family and an old white guy, and they bumped into each other. And I happened to be walking by close enough to, to see this happen. And immediately the old white guy was like, he, he made some sort of racial slur. And without a pause, without a second hesitation, the thought that went through my mind is, when you're dead, that thought dies too. I can't wait till all the people that think like you are dead so that we can get rid of racism. That was where my heart went. And you know what? In that moment, I became just as bad as he did. I became no better than him. Unrighteous hatred. And we know we do that same thing with politics, the same dynamic. 
And we know it's awful, we know it, and yet we're still surprised when it happens. If you guys have watched Bruce Springsteen's one-man show on Netflix, there's this really moving moment where he talks about how devastated he is to see where our country's at. And he says this, he says, things I never thought I'd see again in my lifetime, things that I thought were dead and gone forever on the ash heap of history. You know, we've come too far and worked too hard. Too many people paid too high a price, paid with their lives to allow this to happen now. Too much hard work done and sacrifice. I think we'd all agree with that, but yet we're naive we are to think that we can eradicate it, that with brute strength of will, we can get rid of this history-long problem. It persists. We're never going to solve it. The philosopher John Gray wrote a book called The Silence of Animals. He's an atheist, but I think he gets it better than we do sometimes. He says, if you look at history, all we see is evidence that we don't advance when it comes to ethics and morals. We can eradicate slavery, and then we can outsource it. We can say pollution is bad, and then we send all of our things that we make that are polluted to China and to India to make for us. We don't eradicate it. One person can overturn what the previous person has done. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean we don't fight. That doesn't mean we don't fight racism. We don't fight political battles. Policies are important. But what the Bible and history shows us is that we're not going to solve it. Because it's a heart issue. It's not a policy issue. It's a heart issue. And that's why this passage is amazing and mind-blowing because it says only Christianity provides the solution. And the solution is the person of Jesus. And the text shows us how he does it. Look at verse 15. It says, Christ has destroyed the hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. God gave us the law to thrive, to glorify himself, to show the world God through their holy living, to bring people together to himself, for Israel to be a light to the nations. And what happened? The people broke the laws instead. And that's true for all people, for Israel, for the Gentiles, for us. The law was to be a light, and instead it revealed Israel's sin. And there's this amazing passage in Romans, right, that lists, Paul's listing all the sins of the Gentiles, right? And listen to some of them. He says, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, envy, murder, slanderers, haters of God, disobedient to their parents. Watch it, youth. Disobedient to their parents, right? Faithless, heartless. And you could almost imagine, as they're reading this letter, the Israelites bubbling up with pride. Look at the sins of the Gentiles. And then he, he winds up them, and he says, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on them. For whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. You're no different than the Gentiles. You do the same things. You have no reason to be prideful or proud. You have the law, and you don't do the law. So the light was to shine God's light in the world, and instead it just revealed that everyone is hostile towards God. Jew, Gentile, us. So the law condemned Gentiles and Jews. And following the law was supposed to be an outworking of our heart, and it showed that none of us have a heart for God. 
And we're, we're the same. We think we're better. We're better because we volunteer at Grace Point. But our hearts, they're far from God. We treat each other poorly. Sometimes brothers and sisters in Christ, we treat poorly. We come in and we tithe, we volunteer, we think we're good, but Jesus says, before you come and worship me and bring a gift, make sure you're reconciled to one another. And we don't do that. And that's why this text is amazing, because Jesus did what we fail to do every day. He fulfills the law for us. And he not only keeps the commandments, he does them with the right heart, with a desire to please his Father. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look what he writes. He says, um, Christ reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross. So Jesus fulfilled the law, showing mercy, right? But he was despised for it by Jews and by Gentiles. They hate, we hate the law and we hate the one who kept it. Pastor Tom talked last week, right, about the story of the adulterous woman who's going to be stoned. And Jesus says, whoever hasn't sinned, cast the first stone, right? And they, they hate, they despise Jesus for doing that, right? They're hostile. How dare you compare my sins to her sins, right? We do the same thing. What does Jesus do? He bears our hostility in his life. How can something good come out of Nazareth? Don't we talk like that all the time? Nothing good can come out of Pennsylvania, right? He's a Republican, Nothing good can come out of his mouth. Jesus is spit upon. He's cursed at. He's mocked by Jews and by Gentiles. And then he bears our hostility in his death. He bears the hostility on the body, with his body on the cross. The ultimate curse, cursed on a tree. If you read the, the conquest, right, Joshua kills these kings that are enemies of God and they're hung on trees and he always takes them down because it was a curse. And yet Jesus, right, Jesus is on the cross, and he loves those who are spitting on him. He loves those who are mocking him. He's praying for the people that are killing him. Jesus' body is torn on the cross so that the curtain in the temple could be torn in two, all with the goal of making a new people that permanently changes anyone who trusts in Jesus. Paul opens this passage saying this, for he himself is our peace who's made us both one, killing the hostility. Jesus first deals with our hostility between God and ourselves. He reconciles us to God, and that is what reconciles us to one another. You have to see how Christ changes our standing before God. We're all destined for judgment, every one of us, all without hope. We think Trump or Warren is our biggest problem or racism. No, our biggest problem is our hostility towards God. We want total love and acceptance in these things that will never deliver because they weren't made to do that. But in Christ, we experience total love and acceptance. We no longer have to elevate ourselves over others. We're raised with Christ seated with him. That's not just restoring us to baseline, right? That's an elevation. We're seated with Christ in the heavens. The gospel says your race, your gender, your class, they don't make you better. They don't make you more important. They don't make you more precious or more significant. They can never give you the meaning or the worth that you want. You're infinitely valuable because you've been endowed 
with the image of God. You can't do anything to increase or decrease that value. Nothing can take it away. And that unity makes us one with each other. Believers are a new humanity, a new people. And that was God's mission from the start. So though we fall short of his commands, Jesus did what you didn't so that you could be forgiven. And then you can forgive others. That's what gives us compassion to those outside. Isn't that good news? That you don't have to prove yourself to be valuable because someone devalued you in some way. Your job doesn't prove your worth. Your status, single married children, no children, doesn't make you better or worse. You're God's beloved child. And nothing can take that away. The infinite one finds you to be infinitely precious in his sight. You see the power of this verse? It says, Jesus is our peace. He didn't make peace. He is our peace. Peace isn't a state of mind. It's being united to the Son of God permanently, fully restored, embraced by God, making us like him. Jesus makes us whole so that we don't need to elevate ourselves over another. We don't have to feel hostile towards others because of who we are in Christ. This really is like marriage language made us one. We're one to one another. That's the way our relationship is supposed to look. So some applications in no particular order based on what we're learning here. Race is not important. So for those of you guys who are dating or bringing dates home for your parents, right? The parents, you should be thinking, the first question in your mind should be, is this person a believer? Not, I hope that they're white, or I hope that they're Nigerian, or I hope that they're Korean. Is this person part of the new humanity? You should feel closer to your brother or sister in this church, regardless of race, than a person of your same race that's not a believer. So if you're white and you have white friends that are not believers, you should feel less close to them than your Korean and Nigerian brothers and sisters here. That's the way that that should be. Christians should be bridge builders in our culture. Political, class, racial issues. We should desire justice and mercy because Jesus faced justice so that we could be shown mercy. If you're a Westminster student, you should not feel superior to other denominations that get mocked in class. We are not better than our Baptist brothers and sisters. And then more pointedly, we should not be hostile towards one another at Grace Point. There is nothing that should cause us to not reconcile with one another. If you think you're superior, if you're looking down on somebody here, if you're angry at them, you've forgotten the cross. You've forgotten that Christ died for your sins. If you feel guilty, the gospel covers over your prejudices. Christ died for those too, and you're forgiven. If you have been the victim of prejudice and racism, the gospel covers over that as well. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be saying, this is all a lie. This is not true. This doesn't change anything. This doesn't mean anything. This is not practical. You're talking up in the clouds. The church is just as bad. You just called us to love one another. Isn't that what this is all about? Well, we get glimpses. 
We are imperfect. We still sin. But you get glimpses in the church that are powerful. I've talked in past sermons, right, about the Amish church in Eastern PA that forgave the man that shot 10 children in their school. They went to his funeral. They forgave him on the spot. And they're currently helping his widow financially. Radical love and forgiveness because they know who they are in Christ. If you remember Dylan Roof shooting up the Emmanuel AME Church, right, in Charleston, they forgave Dylan publicly. And now most recently, we have the story of Amber Geiger. Amber Geiger was texting with somebody, walked into another person's apartment and thought she was in her own place, and she shot an innocent man in his own home, Botham Jean. And two weeks ago, she was sentenced to murder. She was jailed for I don't know how many years. But at her sentencing, Botham John's brother embraced her, gave her a hug, forgave her publicly. And then the judge did the same thing and gave her a Bible. And this is from one of the Associated Press articles. Judge Kemp said, I was following my own convictions. I could not refuse that woman a hug. I would not. And I don't understand the anger. And I guess I could say if you profess religious beliefs and you're going to follow them, I would hope that they not be situational and limited to one race. She asked if I thought that God could forgive her. And I said, yes, God can forgive you and has. You haven't done so much that you can't be forgiven. Kem flipped to a page in the New Testament, John 3.16, a well-known verse, highlighting God's love and said, this is where you start. She needs to recognize that even the fact that she murdered somebody, God still loves her. It's powerful. It's so powerful that they did a report on these instances of forgiveness in the last several years on the Today Show. And I just want to show you a minute-long clip of them processing what they just saw. It's very, very powerful. So I just asked Fulham if he could raise the volume as high as it can go. So can I tell you a story? Yes. I'm in church years ago. Sermon is about the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. and there's a portion in the Lord's Prayer where it says, forgive us our trespasses mm -hmm. as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the guy says, think about that for a second. Is there someone in your life for whom you just have this Jones, this thing yeah. that you, that person just drives you nuts? You need to let that go. Yeah. So I said in the corporate prayer, I did it. I did this thing. Yeah. I hadn't seen the guy in years. I ran into him in the street like the next day. Oh, right? Wow. And it was just was, uh, yeah. I thought, there's some serious message in this yes. whole idea that you release something in yourself yeah. when you give that up. So for those people that we've seen do this, there's, there's, it's, a, it's a transaction, as I said mm -hmm. in the piece. Right? It's a two-way street. Yeah. I don't well, know if I like could do it. It's like the give yeah. in forgiveness. It's like you have to yes. give. It costs you something. Yes. Right. But it also repays something and, and helps you heal. But as, a, as a human, it's also counterintuitive to some yes. degree. As a family member, that young man in Texas, what you just saw, I mean, that was yeah. one of the most unbelievable things I've ever mm -hmm. seen. Right. His that mother, is a difficult thing yeah. to do. Mm -hmm. I feel like it is just I only a pray. witness yeah. to like, it, it felt like God himself is yeah. in that mm -hmm. moment. I mean, I know well, that's people a good point. believe different things, but when I saw that, that, I thought, yep, there's proof that God exists. <laughs> Today's show, that's the kind of conversation, that's the impact 
that somebody living out the gospel has with these five people, right? Proof that God, God was there. That's proof that God is real. Christ bore our hostility towards him so that we could be made into new people. And not just individuals, a new humanity, Gentile and Jew, black, white, rich, poor, all one people who find our value because God has given it to us. And he's died for us to save us. That's how valuable we are. So that we don't have to value these temporary things like our status, our jobs, that we don't need to find meaning and elevate ourselves over others for these things. Would you rest this morning in knowing that you are God's beloved? Would you live out of that love?